Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel. This is a show where I get to talk about sports. I get to talk about business and I get to talk about everything in between. Today, my incredible guest, I have Christina Smith. She's a Canadian Olympic athlete from 2002 Salt Lake City, Bob Sled. She's also the author of Empowered, which is coming soon. Christina, how are you doing today? I am super. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. The pleasure is all mine, Christina. I'm very excited to get to talk to you about your bobsled career after your bobsled career, because I know you stayed in the sport for a little while. You loved it so much. And obviously, talk about your new book that's coming out. But the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? Well, I had very active parents. Um, We also came from a ski background. My great-grandpa and grandfather both built and owned ski hills. And uh, so we had a lot of that influence, you know, being active since the age of two on on, uh, skis. And then uh, my family has just been immersed in just keeping active and health and wellness has been at the forefront of growing up. Uh, not only, you know, being active, but um, having, you know, good dietary habits and uh, movement. Motion is lotion to the body. So I like that. Motion is lotion. That's pretty good. I've actually so I um, have taken up in the month of June. Shout out to my good friend, Rob Cressy. He did this in May and I thought it was pretty cool. So I did it in June. I'm going to walk slash run 100 miles in the month of June. And I love it. I love walking first off. Uh, I hate running. So I've done a little bit more walking than running, but it's been, I don't know, pretty easy. I walk like four and a half miles a day now, five miles a day. So like, I guess I'm getting a lot of motion. So hopefully that's a lot of lotion for the body. So very (laughs) excited for that. So you said your grand, both your grandparents or your grandparents built a ski hill. So I'm kind of curious, was there no mountain where you're coming from? Or was this specifically downhill ski? Inform me a little bit on that. Yes. So my great grandpa, he immigrated from Switzerland and he um, was he always thought that he brought skiing to Canada. (laughs) No mountains in Canada. (laughs) Um, But uh, I believe that there was Jackrabbit Johansson that preceded him. Um, However, uh, my grandpa Basler, um, he started up a hill and um, had a large family and they helped him, you know, um, pioneer this lovely mountain in Morn Heights. And it was called the Bellevue Hotel. So everything was very Swiss themed. And then uh, my grandmother, who is one of his children, married uh, my grandpa de Boscour. And they built a mountain of all things, which they named Mount Olympia. And they even had the Olympic rings on the logo prior to them being, uh, you know, now restricted. <laughs> so that was a little bit of foreshadowing in my life. And my parents, uh, my mom and dad, they uh, met on a ski hill. And my mom ended up teaching my dad how to ski. And he went on to being quite a pioneer in ski instructing because he was the first full or part-time ski instructor ever to be uh, awarded the level four in the Canadian Ski Instructors Alliance as like a part-time ski instructor. So uh, very um, active, very determined, you know, um, they're, they're community builders. And yeah, it's uh, it's been very much 
the foundation of my upbringing around sport, about around building and pioneering in that. I think, I mean, that's incredible um, that that much of your family has been based around skiing down to, as you said, your parents <laughs> meeting on a ski hill. I, I, I'm a huge believer in the universe and uh, I don't think, how do I like to say it? I don't think things happen for a reason, but everything has a reason that it happens, uh, if that makes sense. It makes sense in my head. I don't know if it makes sense to anybody else, but I think that is is pretty darn important. So I'm guessing you, you skied a lot. Where did where and how did bobsled come into the picture? Because I know you're a big fan and obviously you've been doing it a while. Went to the 2002 games down in uh, Salt Lake City with it. So talk to me a little bit about how you found bobsled. Because what I've found in talking to many people that are from the sport of bobsled, about nine times out of 10, maybe maybe 9.5 times out of 10, they usually are track stars who just unfortunately could weren't able to make the summer games. And someone's like, hey, do you do you want to run on the ice? Let's see what happens there. So I'm kind of curious the story of you and how you got into bobsled. Yeah, well, um, I actually at university, at University of Calgary, I had seen this man walking around with a, you know, a motorcycle helmet and a pair of tights, but it was in the winter time, And it was kind of odd, you know, I thought you don't ride your motorcycle here. And, you know, so it was confusing. And I, I remember asking him and he told me about this crazy, fast adrenaline packed sport and, you know, with crashes and concussions and ice burns and, you know, all this craziness. And then he made a comment. He said, you know, you have a good set of legs on you. They're looking for women, you know, and, and I just thought, oh, my goodness, it was as if he had asked me to be, you know, an astronaut. And uh, I pretty much, you know, disregarded the comments and went on with my day and, Probably around two months later, I was asked to model in a fashion show, and I showed up, and lo and behold, he's there. And I was like, what are you doing here? And he's like, well, I'm doing a fundraiser for my bobsleigh team. And so I had a friend that came to watch, and she won a door prize. And it was a one-year free bobsleigh club membership, and she gave it to me. So that was genuinely the start of my bobsleigh introduction. However, I have to say that a few years prior, I had um, I had been introduced just as a test, you know, um, a crash test dummy kind of thing. We were ski instructors at the at the ski resort uh, where the bobsleigh track was built, and they wanted to get our feedback. So I had gone down for a run before, and I just remember it was just like bungee jumping. You do it once, woo! You know, it's like thrilling. And then after that, it was like, you know, I never thought in a million years I'd ever do it again. You know, not that it was like, you know, it scared me or anything. It it was thrilling. However, um, shortly after, you know, this this whole thing started with after the the fashion show and getting that free pass to go, um, you know, the the dryland training wasn't of course extreme. It was more so learning how to push the sled, and it was essentially a sled that was on um, almost like a train track you know, with wheels, you know, and we'd go down a hill and come back up and you jump out. And I mean, uh, to be honest, we didn't even have helmets that we would use when we were training. It was just like being a track athlete on a track, pushing this heavy thing. And uh, so by the time winter came, that's when, you know, that guy came back and said, you know, okay, this is it, you know, we're going down for a ride. And I just remember them saying to me, you know, you can look over the driver's head, you know, like kind of switch side to side and, and try to, you know, pay attention to the way down. 
And uh, I just remember getting in. I tried to look, you know, first corner, second corner, third corner. By the time the fourth corner hit me, my head was impaled between my knees and, you know, my legs. And I was just being thrown side to side. I just had no idea what was going on. I didn't know where I was. I lost count of the corners. I was getting bruises where I never thought I'd get bruises. And I literally got to the bottom again, not knowing where I was. And all I could feel was this kind of a bang on my head. And it was actually the driver wailing my helmet with her fist, trying to wake me up and and screaming, of course, that she wanted me to put the brakes on. And so that basically, I finally got the sled stopped. And that was kind of the introduction to do I really want to do this again? Like this was like, it scared the the GVs out of me. <laughs> My so, goodness. Yeah, that is, oof. yeah, that first time, as you said, it was like, um, you know, bungee jumping. I've gone skydiving. So yeah, I mean, it didn't, I, I'm terrified of heights, but I was like, you know what? Hey, let's do it once. I never need to do it again. And it sounds like you've been able to kind of jump back on that horse, I guess. And I just want to, again, point out one more time, the universe works in mysterious ways, right? This guy just randomly stops by, you talk to him and then you meet him up again. And then your friend wins the door prize. She gives it to you. I mean, that's too many stars aligning for me. Clearly, uh, it was meant to be, I guess, as they like to say. And um, so so after that first trip down, um, doesn't sound like you had a great time. I got to ask, why'd you do it again? It was really the, the vision of being a pioneer. And to me to be at the forefront of, you know, bringing women from around the world together to, to actually bring the sport that was a male dominated sport, you know, um, at the forefront and, and achieve Olympic status uh, to, you know, be recognized as a full medal sport. I mean, that was just, that was a huge thrill. And um, I remember um, I actually used to sing in a choir, a city choir, and we, we were singing in the opening ceremonies of the 1988 Winter Olympic Games in Calgary, Alberta. And that was actually where the Olympic seed was planted because I thought it was like this odd, like this moment of, oh my gosh, like how did they get there? Like how did they do that? And I want to do it too. And I didn't really know how that was going to happen, but it was something inside. So when this whole thing started, I thought, you know, I just needed courage, you know, and so I had to step into it and, away I went and just stayed focused and worked very hard and yeah (laughs) and what year what year was this first initial run uh so 1992 was the uh first year that I started Mm -hmm. uh bobsleigh yes okay so then 10 years later we make it to the games which is absolutely incredible considering it was the first time you really started practicing this sport 10 years later you're one of the best in the world I think that's pretty darn cool right And, and so I guess um Talk to me about that journey. I mean, I don't want to just condense 10 years into, you know, four or five minutes, but like, what, what was that like? I mean, there was a couple Olympics that came and passed, if I'm not mistaken, what, 94, and there was like three winter Olympics in that times, because that's when they broke the summer and winter games used to be the same year. And they decided, Hey, more money, we could break it up into two different years. So I think there's what three winter Olympics within that time. What were your prospects? What was like the legitimacy of, of those first couple saying like, Hey, like, I think, 
you know, hey, we're going to we're going to train and see what happens versus, OK, I actually think that there's a good shot that we're going to be making these games or we're in the running or we're in qualification. What were those first couple like before you eventually did crack in uh, in 2002 and make the games? Yeah. So the first one I recall applying, you know, in 92. And of course, that was just too soon. You know, we still needed to get momentum with the women. We were literally adopting countries, you know, adopting nations and trying to support one another. So it was uh, very much an international family, you know, people uh, sharing equipment, coaches from every country on different corners, giving feedback to everybody. It wasn't like just you know, as you would have it now, you know, the uh, the countries uh, staying mm-hmm. to their own and, and just supporting one another there. So it was uh, truly this this amazing community um, and a journey together. Now, um, then 94, that again, it was like every year that we missed it, we're like, oh, we're going to, you know, we it was just about proving to the old boys club essentially but we did have some amazing men that helped us along the way uh, that were you know our true cheerleaders and that you know so um but there were just it was this old boys club and i mean to the point that they were saying you know we shouldn't slide because it would disturb our reproductive organs and and uh, i mean it was it was it was ludicrous really mm-hmm. and, and yes okay it is an extreme sport as we will be diving into later on. But I mean, the, the, the whole thing is, is that we were determined women and there was nothing going to stop us. And we, we had some very unfortunate incidences that didn't really say help in the, the acceptance of our sport in, you know, at the Olympics and, uh, we had, you know, some mishaps where a sled, a female's, you know, a female team flew off the track, you know, into the trees in Switzerland. And that was, whew, that was very scary. And we also had, um, you know, another athlete that passed away who had flown out of the track as well. And, and we had some other incidences that just kind of added and gave them ammunition kind of to work against us, you mm-hmm. know. So it was really unfortunate, but you know what? There were men's teams that had had that happen as well, but we were just such a smaller group, so the impact was way bigger. And uh, But we just kept, you know, positive and pushing forward. And I always said uh, to myself, you know, um, if a, a man, you know, a male athlete would come up and offer their help, that was a really, really good sign because – I know that with myself and my partners, I always said, you know, we have to be independent. We have to be, you know, strong, uh, you know, as a team, just her and I, and also as a united team with the other women. Uh, but, you know, as a as a pair, we have to be able to do just as much as the men uh, can do uh, with or without their help. But if they do ask, I really was very, uh, very grateful because I wanted them to recognize that I too as a teammate, you know, and they were recognizing me and uh, they were also being gentlemen. And, but at the same time, I think that's where I was earning that respect because uh, they could tell that I could pull my own weight. Yeah. Right. You're, you're going down the same tracks. You're going almost yeah. as fast, like if not faster, like, I don't know exactly how the speeds work in the sport, but I, I mean, it's just kind of looking back some of the excuses that were made, 
like 30 years ago we're i mean it's only 30 years ago right it was the 90s like that's not that long ago when you think about it but that's just stupid like i can't believe and i hey i don't know what it's like because obviously i've never been in your shoes but man it's just dumb like it's just dumb but thankfully you stuck to it you and your teammates your partners women around the world stuck to it and now obviously i love watching bobsled I can't wait to watch. It is so much fun. It is absolutely thrilling to watch. I think it's incredible. And Skeleton, too. That's just, that's a little too much for me. I don't really get that. But Bob Sledger, at least in something, right? But so I guess, like, when you eventually do, when when did you get the notice? Or when did you, when did, when were you told that, A, this is going to be in the games, and B, you're going to the games? Um, October 2nd of 1999 was the exact day. Uh, when I found out and I remember we ran to the closest McDonald's next to the track, got a ice cream cone and went and posed as if it was the torch, you know, the love it. <laughs> love it. And sat down in front of the, the a 1988 uh, Olympic winter games, kind of uh, the sign. And we, we posed there and I just thought, you know what, this is the beginning, you know? And, um, and then, um, I was actually uh, with my break woman, uh, Lisa May Stringer, and we were uh, competing in Austria, um, in Innsbruck specifically. And that was where um, I actually was qualified in that race. Uh, her and I, we, uh, we achieved that goal. She was so determined to get me qualified because as a driver, you get qualified versus the brakemen. So the brakemen later on have to do their qualifications. So, and that's where actually the month prior to the games, they had a push off and Paula McKenzie was my break moment for the Olympic games in 2002. That is yeah. incredible. That must've been just so cool. I love that you went, God, I was like, why are you getting, go to McDonald's? Like of all the places, but I love it. Like, no, you, it looks like the torture, right? And you can hold it up. And as you said, in Calgary in 88 is when they had the Olympic games up there. So I love it. I think that's absolutely fantastic. And what, like, I mean, there's probably, it's probably very hard to put into words, but everything I've ever heard about the, the opening ceremonies is there's literally nothing like it. You, a lot of people black out during it because it's just that monumental of, of, uh, of an event. I mean, what was it like for you? Just, just the atmosphere of the games being there, getting to see all these other incredible athletes from all over the world being one, uh, as, as being different, you know, the team Canada, like what, tell, tell me a little bit about that. Cause I think that's just the coolest part of all of it. Well, whenever I feel you know, the muscles in your cheeks, just almost like they're they're vibrating because they're working so hard. Well, honestly, like my grin was just ear to ear and it just did not go away. And I remember holding my uh, Olympic, uh, one of my gear, you know, a real heavy um, jacket. And I just remember I'm not letting my hand, my arm down, you know, like I just did not want to stop waving to the crowd. And, and, uh, and it was just like one of those workouts that you just know you want to end, but you don't want to end. You mm-hmm. know? <laughs> and uh, yeah, the thrill, the, the cheers, the, you know, the, just the excitement in like, not only, you know, are my teammates and, and the other uh, Olympians eyes around me uh, that walked in, you know, and um, I mean, team Canada was just, there's so many greats in that team. I mean, I look back and I'm like, wow, like that was a good year. And uh, yeah. And of course, just to be able to mingle with all those different countries in the Olympic village. I mean, that was, 
uh, to think that some people actually miss out on that part. It just, um, they actually wanted to keep me home um, and to not go to the opening ceremony so that I, they said to keep me focused, you know, and not distracted and all that stuff. I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, if you keep me home, I'm going to be absolutely distracted. Like, I'm going to be mortified, you know, because that is, that's the, that's the cherry on top of an amazing, you know, uh, career. And, and we don't know how, you know, performance will be at the Olympic Games. And no matter what, what you do, however you prepare, you know, the day is the day and whatever happens, happens. And so to think that, you know, you may miss out on, on such a monumentous moment would just be so, so terrible. So I really encourage any any Olympian that thinks that they're going to stay home. And, you know, it's it's really, I think we have been disciplined enough to be able to compartmentalize that event, get it out of our system, and then refocus. Because that's, that's what we're, we're meant to do, you know, that's what we're bred to do. Yeah, so it's it just every time I get chills hearing about it because it just sounds like so much fun. And I've talked to athletes who have skipped the opening ceremonies. Uh, I've talked to athletes that have been able to and 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 earn their way to the games multiple times and missed the opening ceremonies once and said they will if they ever had the chance to go back they'll never do that again. Um, a lot of cool stories that I've heard from athletes on on the opening ceremonies in particular. And uh, if the internet did not lie to me, it looks like you finished top ten. So, Christina, I got to ask you, what is it like being top 10 in the world at something? You're literally one of the test, 10 best people at something in the world. That's got to be a pretty cool feeling, right? You know, thank you so much. I I have, uh, you know, often people, you know, say, oh, they thought I won a medal. What medal did you get? Who cares? Who cares? Like, said, thank you so much. You know, top 10 in the world. I'll literally be top 1000 in the world at anything. I think it's incredible. Top 10,000 in the world is something. <laughs> You're so sweet. No, I appreciate that because, um, you know, when we came in ninth officially, um, I had made an error on my second run. Uh, I mean, I made errors actually on both runs. I can't, I, I must admit, I actually didn't really realize it uh, because I had just recently reviewed the race um, uh, because I had really kind of taken all those memories and I didn't look at them. And I just have gone through archives recently after uh, a movie that we've just produced. And, and it was, it was absolutely like, wow, like, oh my gosh. Ooh, oh, like one of those things, you know, it's like, oh gosh, you know, and no wonder my coaches were feeling that way and all these things. And anyways, uh, but you know what, it is what it is. Um, and you can't go back. And the biggest thing, like you said, you know, there's, there's an achievement there that was experienced. Um, and my biggest thing in my heart, and I, and I had a, you know, a pinky square kind of a pact with my brakeman, Paula. I said, you know, whatever happens, let's hold our head high. Let's go with good sportsmanship, you know, be proud of what we've done, be be really happy for for being here because we are 
genuinely representing all the women from previous, you know, efforts trying to bring this sport to fruition here. And we represent all of them. And I was, it was actually really, I just felt so privileged because out of all those women, you know, a decade prior, there were only two of us that actually were competing at those games, Francoise Baudet from Switzerland and myself. So, you know, all these women, you know, like the Ziggy Fusers and the, you know, Sue Calverts, which are Canadians you, you, you may not know about, but these are some of the women that were, you know, just preceded even me, you know, a few years prior that I was able to slide with and that they were, you know, they were trailblazers along with me that, you know, and, and actually Ziggy was there as a, as a, a coach um, along with Kim Cousins. So it was, there was some women power there that really was, you know, I, I never thought of myself as a feminist, but, you know, there are certain different degrees. And I, and I really have to say, you know, power, power to the estrogen. <laughs> Love it. Yes, absolutely. And as we were saying before, some people are just kind of stupid and make dumb excuses, but I think it's incredible that these women, you included, obviously, uh, pushed through so much and did so much to help a sport that you truly loved um, and, you know, compete for a country, obviously, that you love as well, which I think is it's pretty darn cool, Christina. It is pretty darn cool. And yeah, again, we make way too much uh, too big of a deal about the medals. Obviously, meddling is cool, right? We're not here to say it's not. But you're top 10 in the world at something. Like, I don't care what medal you got. You're top 10 in the world. So I think that's absolutely incredible. Top nine for you, actually, which I think is pretty cool. And so 2002, obviously, again, you make the games. And it was probably kind of nice. It was down in Salt Lake City. So it's not really even that far of a, uh, not far of a drive for you guys. But what, um, one thing I always like to ask athletes when you know their career comes to an end, one thing I've found is pretty much any athlete in any sport, most of the time, it's not their idea to call it quits most of the time it's it's an injury it is uh you know for for some other professional athletes there's no team wants to sign you right so i'm kind of curious from your perspective you've been doing this for 10 years at this point what was it your idea was this kind of the culmination of your career did you try and gun for 2006 and it just unfortunately didn't didn't uh, break your way like talk to me a little bit about the retirement and the ending um of your your bobsled career wow Yes, you know, I actually, I actually was contemplating, you know, should I keep going? And after such an amazing experience and how you learn so much at those inaugural games and you think to yourself, gosh, you know, I would have done all these different things. And I mean, I actually was very sick uh, and I didn't tell anybody until after the event because I didn't want it to be a media frenzy around that. Um, but I really, it was, it was very poor timing um, leading up to my event. So I just really, I said to myself, you know, I, I prayed that I just want to wake up and have the fortitude in my mind to be focused. And that's all. Like I, I, it was, it was so far out of my reach physically that I never thought, you know, that I could have recovered. So the way I did that, that morning, I was like, okay, you know what, you got what you got, you're going to use it, you're going to do your best. Um, so, um, so when I retired, uh, again, it wasn't in the cards, or at least it was in the cards, but it wasn't in my deck that I was dealing for myself. Very nice. And, 
I, um, I did have an injury. Um, and there were also, you know, some challenges politically that I went through. Um, and I do understand that our sports system also has, you know, certain restrictions or certain, um, I, I won't even say restrictions, but limitations, you know, certain amount of money for certain, you know, programs or certain amount of people and things like that. And so um, there's certain ways that athletes kind of lose their spot. And from one moment you have good equipment and in bobsleigh, good equipment is very important. I tell you, I went from dabbling in 12th place, you know, essentially in the world to all of a sudden being put into a sled just by chance and I ended up on the podium that that next race. And I mean, that does not normally happen. So you can see the extreme of the, the equipment. So, um, you know, when a piece of equipment who, that was promised to you, and then it's been taken away now. And, you know, different things like that. So there's um, certain ways that we experience and and I'm very passionate about alumni transition. I'm very passionate about um, recognizing certain injustices that have happened to many alumni. But how can you, in a sense, hold that anger? Uh, because first of all, it's unhealthy. You know, yeah. you just have to. I, I like to understand like what makes certain federations make those decisions, and it really comes down to dollars. A lot of it, you know, what can they afford? Um, also, they're looking at the next generation. They're looking at, we would rather put more money into a young, you know, mm-hmm. thoroughbred, you know, and versus a potentially old stallion or something. I don't know. But you know what I mean? So I, I can't, I can't um, say that there's right or wrong, but um, yeah, there's uh, definitely there were a few factors. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it it is unfortunate. Um, It would be nice, the athletes that get to walk out on their own terms, but unfortunately, that's not really how athletics works, right? You get, you know, a solid 10 years, I think, uh, as as an athlete, and that's great career. That's a long career. Most athletes, you know, two, three years, and they're pretty much out of the system, unfortunately. So it sounds like you had a pretty good one. Again, went to the games, top 10 in the world, as you said, made a couple podiums along the way, which I think is pretty cool. But you stayed within the sport. Right. Yeah. You, you're you're an ambassador to the sports. Still, you were an ambassador. I, I saw that you did uh, the sports casting in 2010 uh, for the Olympics, which I think is pretty cool. You were even a coach, if I'm not mistaken, of uh, the France team. Right. So you stayed within the sport. That's another question. And another topic that I always like to discuss as well is some athletes, they just want to get the hell out. It's like I did my time. I kind of ended in a shitty way. So like, I'm, you know, kind of bad taste in my mouth. I want to get out. I want to do something else. I've spent so much time, effort, energy, blood, sweat, tears, money in this. Let's take a little bit of a break. Uh, But it sounds like you've stuck around and continue to stick around. So clearly you love the sport, but like what was, what went into that decision as well as to, you know, continue to dive deeper and deeper into the sport in so many different fashions versus, I don't know, Get a job somewhere else. Go do something else. Live some live in a tropical climate for once, maybe. I don't know. Go get out of the winter. What what was uh, what were the decisions behind that? That's a good question because uh, for me, 
it was always about it's not about being an Olympian that's important. It's about what you do after to make a difference in the world. And that uh, was always something like that. I wanted to do something that had an impact. I wanted to give back. I called what I had my or what I have my Olymp like being an Olympian to me, that was I had an Olympic degree. And how was I going to apply it? And so for the longest time, you know, I, you know, some athletes, again, like the alumni often step away and, and there's other ones that whether they have a medal or not, they still want to be part in the community and giving back. I mean, I've done, oh my goodness, hundreds of fundraisers and been on nonprofit boards and, and just giving back that way and then a lot of you know emceeing and speaking in that and and to me that anything to inspire athletics and, and sport involvement especially at the amateur and youth you know the youth and children's level it was very important um being an ambassador not only of sport but of the olympic movement of olympism and um uh one of the things again it was that i had left with a little bit of a pit in my stomach, you know, and a hole in my heart. And I thought, gosh, darn it. I don't want to leave with this feeling like this emptiness. I want to, to, to make the most of this Olympic degree and to see where and who would want to use my skills, use my talents, use, you know, my expertise, my experience, my wisdom, all that stuff. And, and, to be honest, it was actually really hard to to find people in Canada that were receptive to my offer because it was, again, boys club, very like, you know, and so here I am, the first female, you know, to um, be retired from the sport as an Olympian and that. And I was getting um, offers from foreign countries. I mean, I was approached from Australia to do some coaching behind the scenes, you know, and again, a female coaching, you know, uh, quietly uh, behind, whereas they had kind of the figurehead, which was the male coach, you know, who didn't really know that they were getting, you know, covert, uh, you know, like kind of side, side info. Consulting. You know? I think we call that consulting now. Okay. Yes. Nice. And, and then, and then I was, you know, hired by Monaco um, because you're, you're familiar with uh, Prince Albert of Monaco. Um, he's actually, he's a bobslayer. And so they haven't, they had, you know, a team for years with him, the pilot on that team uh, and absolutely amazing man. So supportive of, you know, bobsleigh and the Olympic movement. And anyway, so I was asked to coach the Monaco men's team, which was literally one of the first for females to be asked to coach a men's team. I was also asked to coach uh, the Jamaican bobsleigh team. Uh, Were you in Cool Runnings? Yes, I was actually. Were you? <laughs> Seriously? Yes, yes. No way. That's awesome. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. So that was a fun movie. That was actually the year that um, that I joined into bobsleigh in 1992 when they were filming and they released it in 1993. So, yeah, I have my picture with John Candy and uh, yeah, it's uh, and actually, awesome. I have that picture. I put it in my book. 
I thought that was a special moment. Yeah. That is incredible. Yeah. Well, first, John Candy's awesome, RIP. But uh, yeah, that movie, pretty yeah. iconic. I mean, everyone my age and like a little bit older pretty much knows that movie, the movie about the Jamaican bobsled team, right? That's so cool. Oh, man. I didn't realize that. See, even I get surprised in these interviews sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Love so, it. so it was, it was, it was fantastic, you know, like just all those little opportunities. And then, of course, France. It was actually interesting enough. The, the woman, Lisa May Stringer, that I had qualified for the Olympic Games, um, you know, the in, in Innsbruck, Austria, she became a bobslayer. And um, she actually went to France to continue her career because she wasn't being supported on our home turf uh, because she was an older athlete, you know. So and she's like, well. I just feel like going to another country. And I was right behind her. I said, you go for it. I said, people don't recognize your talents here. I said, I'm right behind you. And I had started a program to help, um, uh, you know, to connect um, alumni like myself with up and comers. Um, And I thought, you know, I don't have any money, excess money, but I have equipment, I have skills, I have knowledge. And so I started a program called Push Start Canada. And that was, uh, and it was funny because people are like, why are you being such a philanthropist? You don't have two pennies to rub together. It's like, I said, but, you know, like, I, I want to help the people now. And if I wait until I have the funds later, they won't be around anymore. And so I really, I I thought I have these expensive sleds that are not serving me, you know, much good just sitting there if I'm not competing anymore. So um, I had offered uh, my sled to help an athlete that didn't have good equipment. And uh, that athlete ended up later on, on her own efforts, making uh, the national team and uh, but everyone was wondering, like, where did you get that sled? And she's like, well, Christina helped me, you know, and and uh, and then after that, they gave her another sled. So then I said, well, since my sled isn't being used, can I pa- pay it forward to another athlete? And so this athlete who was, you know, was trying to make her efforts, my Lisa, she went to France and I shipped my sled to France and I said, my my program push start is now international love it and uh so she moved her family to france and and then she called me up crying one day and she's like you speak french and german and english i need you because i need a coach that you know a manager that can you know speak all these languages and make sure that i make it to my first race on time and and properly because she had missed her first race because there's a miss they didn't understand oh, no. very well. Uh, the details so anyway so I dropped my job here in Canada and I just literally jumped on a plane the next day and I went to be her manager and and so I've done a lot of little sacrifices along the way because I really you know what money comes and goes but experiences and the ability to help others just sometimes you got to just drop it you know and and uh and then after that um to make a long story short, that program kind of encountered some hiccups. And even though they had for the first time qualified a team as a World Cup females team in France, they ended up shutting the program down. And I was bummed out <laughs> because we had tried so hard to get it there. Um, but then I said, hey, that sled 
I want that sled to be in 2010 Olympics helping somebody. And so I had been introduced to an Australian girl that I had been uh, helping out on the side and she needed a sled. So I, you know, we decided Lisa and I to give that sled to her to use. And so here I am commentating and, you know, my colleague said, isn't that your sled going down the track? I liked it. Sure is, you know, and and in those games, I actually I flew in Lisa because they said you cannot be at home mm-hmm. and be heartbroken. I said, you need to be here. And this is where you're going to start to heal, you know, and I said, I don't want you at home on your own. You have to be here, even if you're not competing. So and I had put 30 grand on my visa already to help her team out and I was like you know I'm gonna get paid back eventually you know by them but right now what's one more flight you know that I could I could do and uh so at those games I actually the the initial girl that I'd helped in Canada won gold uh and we had um the Australian girl that slid and yeah but you actually have uh, the new, uh, the gold medalist from those games, uh, Keely Humphreys, uh, used to be Kaylee Simonson, and she's an American bobsleigher now. So she's just uh, transferred over, and now she's ripping up the track, doing awesome, and, and married to an American. So, yeah, so things are beautiful. That is awesome. And, again, coming full yeah. circle, right, like your sled – gets to go to the games you're there isn't that your sled yeah that's my sled like that is just so fun like that is why i love talking to olympic athletes because the experiences as you said everything that kind of happens along the way is just absolutely like what are the chances to a lot of this stuff and good enough that they happened right like i don't know what the percent chances were but they ended up happening and i totally agree with you coolest part about money is you always make more of it right what are you going to do? You're going to make more at some point, some way, like, you know, figure it out. If you want to go somewhere, go somewhere. You got to, got to try it now. What else are you going to do? Just sit at home. Where's the fun? So I do want to talk about, so that was awesome. Thank you so much for, for, for recapping some of that. I think it's absolutely incredible, but obviously we are here. Talk a little bit about your new book that's coming out empowered. Uh, So I want to know a little bit, what's it about? Where'd the idea come from? What is the goal? What is the purpose? What is the mission of the book and, and how, um, how was it putting it together during a pandemic? That was probably a blast, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah it definitely kept me uh, kept me busy. Busy, yep. Uh, yes, and I, I, I definitely, you know, if you can see a silver lining in anything, that definitely was that silver lining of a pandemic, uh, having that extra time to really reflect upon it and to really make sure like every chapter was something about helping others. Because for me, I, I had um, written or contributed to a previous book um, that was just about pioneering women. So I, you know, got that out of my system, um, you know, writing a little bit about myself and and that. And then um, the next book that I'd done was really a self-help one about using all the mentors and all the tools that I had in my life. And I kind of had um, this, a day timer, a schedule and, and all the different wisdoms of, of like my naturopath and, you know, my, my nutritionist and different things like that all over life. And so this one was very much, okay. So where are the nuggets? Where are those, those, um, 
those things that I take for granted and that others would see wisdom in it and would see potential guidance and help, you know, in their life. So for myself, I've been to 50 countries and counting, and I really, um, I, I've received so much, you know, wealth of information of, of experiences through my travels. Um, and I encourage anyone, I mean, men or women, like you just, any opportunity, grab it because you know that there's nothing better than education, you know, uh, through um, lived experiences. And uh, I always say, go to the most, say, poorest places in the world to really like get a dose of reality and to get grounded and to really appreciate what you have at home because a lot of us take for granted and are so ungrateful. And, and uh, I really think that it's, it's so important to, to have that, those experiences and, of course, expose the children, you know, to those experiences. I, I've never been married, have no children, so I can't speak about parenting or anything, but I just do know that, um, you know, it changed me growing up as a young adult and uh, still does to this day. Um, so uh, the book is really around those experiences of travel, the, the fortitude of having courage to go to these countries that were actually, I didn't really know at the time, but they were kind of had some civil wars going on. And like, I mean, I was, I was just literally like roaming like a butterfly, you know, and, and, and just, just, following spirit you know like following wherever life would lead me and um i never would do research prior to these places and it was the beauty of the surprise of the discovery and all those things um and also the discovery was not external uh or any more external than it was internal and I really think that a lot of us don't spend time on our own. And, and my my happy place really traveling is is stepping into those uncomfortable situations and stepping in or stepping out of my comfort zone and being alone and, and relying on myself and and reaching out to that stranger and starting a conversation or asking directions or something. And so much of us now have these things, you know. I love them. I love them. I love social. I love, you know, the, the portable devices and stuff, but they take away from the social interaction. And, and to me, I really feel that the, you know, it, it's opening our worlds up to be able to have social media, but it's also l making it as if we now don't rely on communicating outwardly because we communicate with our phone to get all the information, you know? So there's aspects of that within the book of um, uh, really relying on self, also about the power within yourself and also overcoming injuries. Um, myself, um, nine years post-retirement, um, officially I was diagnosed with a brain injury and um, I had been invited as an Olympian to participate in an event. And I was there, you know, to encourage, you know, the people there to, you know, um, get involved. And it was a skiing event, actually. And 
Um, but the the doctor, Dr. Tracy Thompson, came up on stage and she started addressing the crowd, you know, why we're here and you may not realize it, but you may have a brain injury. And she started mentioning symptoms. And I started to check off boxes. And at the end of it, I thought, oh my goodness, I have to talk to this woman. And so, um, you know, within that year or so, I finally got in and, and got scanned. Uh, it was a QEEG, which is a quantitative electroencephalogram. <laughs> Big uh, mouthful there. Yeah, I need a little bit more than that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, basically, they look at your uh, the your uh, your brain and the function, so how things are firing. And literally, you can have something that doesn't fire <laughs> or something that kind of fires, you know, weak or strong. Uh, you know, or hyper, you know, super strong, over strong. And, and, um, and it, he literally, uh, his, when doctor, there's another doctor that actually was the ultimate guru specialist, um, Dr. Stuart Donaldson, who is unfortunately, he's passed just in this last year. Um, and he would be able to look at, the you know at my brain scan and actually identify all the areas that i was having issues and he would tell me well you're probably you know uh your short-term memory is really really bad or your long-term memory is has been affected or you may have problems recognizing people's faces and and um or your you know you may have mood swings or you may like all these different things and i was like how did you know all this, you know? And he's like, well, it's speaking to me. And um, there's a clinic, Myosymmetries, that actually has since continued his work. And they do tons of great stuff that actually identifies this for people. And then that's where you decide, do I want to go further with treatment, which is non-invasive, non-drug? And they basically rewire your brain if in the simplest terms. And... Um, and Dr. Tracy Thompson also has a clinic, the Gaia Clinic, that does the same thing. So there's different places in the world mm -hmm. that have different treatments. And not everything is for everybody. But to develop that knowledge of what's out there is super important. And so the book itself has an, a really strong lean on that as well within it. But when you start talking about brain injuries... You know, that's a stigma. That's mm -hmm. like health stuff. Like that's like, whoa, you know, like we don't really want to talk about that, you know, and people think we're cuckoo or something, you know, like not all there. And but that's not the case. I mean, hopefully I I look all there, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I've had a lot of a lot of help. But I have to tell you, there were some dark moments uh, and uh um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't good. And I just kept blaming myself, you know, and, but when you actually get that aha moment that occurs, that you have, you know, uh, discovered something about, you know, your brain, that's your hard drive, you know, so, um, so yeah, so the book has a lot around empowerment, around understanding what, you know, how we live, we can live consciously, being more aware of how we think, our mindset, 
um, and, you know, our positivity, as well as this next phase of my life is really about honoring emotions. I've been doing a lot of studies around um, emotional intelligence. And that is something that I had innate. I had like um, either by default or I just I had I had it and I didn't realize I had it. However, since the brain injury occurred, my emotional regulation wasn't as good. Mm -hmm. So when I think about people, people can have been in a car accident um, and they have no idea that they're walking around with a brain injury. To this day, they could be suffering from something that happened years ago and falling out of a tree, slipping on the ice, you know, banging your bum on the, on the ground and the, you know, the energy going up through your spine to your brain, um, alcoholism, drug abuse, you know, drug addictions, um, spousal abuse, homelessness. There's literally athletes, you know, I know of one, you know, National Hockey League athlete that is homeless. And honestly, it would be an amazing opportunity to to do a big study to all alumni to really get them um you know, have a survey out for them so that we can start to seeing where these people are and, and really wanting to reach out to help people. And, and I know that's very loft, a big, you know, lofty goal of mine, but I'm really, my, my goal is to really create an alumni for sport. Uh, and this would be a big, a big help. And there's actually um, in UCLA, there's a big study that um, we're actually helping out with, and it's going to be a big survey around um, uh, to be distributed to sliding sport alumni in order to collect that data so that we can start seeing, you know, does this really exist? And I call it the hidden pandemic. And, uh, it, and um, it's actually kind of way worse than we would think because we we've lost Olympians uh, from by suicide um, because of it and some national team athletes and you know a couple of recent Americans that we've lost um, and finally the New York Times actually reached out to me uh, after they heard that I had shared what I had gone through with another Olympian um, Bill Schiffenhauer, he's an Olympian from the States, and he had had struggles. And I said, have you thought about your brain? Have you thought about the sliding? You know, and he's like, no, I, I didn't, because he had had a really, um, his background had been very challenged. Uh, you know, he went through some hard, severe hardships. So we often tend to make excuses, you know, or we say blame things that we think it's about. But we actually forget that, you know what, it could be just something a little off inside that's making us the way we are. So that's probably a big answer with, uh, you know, the, a lot of what the book's about. But there's, uh, I think the, the goal is really, I never, I never started going out to necessarily write a book about, about like about myself. But it just, it all, I just kept saying, you know, make sure it helps people, make sure it helps people. And so that was always my intention. 
Um, and, uh, and then, of course, with the discovery of the brain injury and also the suicides of, you know, uh, Steve Holcomb and recently Pavle Jovanovic in, from America and prior to that was Adam Wood from Canada. All those times, like you were saying, those little moments that connect and that, you know, it's not a, just by chance. Like all these moments were spurring me on to just keep going and keep going and keep sharing. Yeah. And keep so, yeah. doing it. It's very yeah. powerful stuff, obviously. Um, name of the book is Empowered. When mm-hmm. um, do we have a release date? Do we know when it's coming out? Well, I was told based on the pandemic backlog and all that stuff, approximately October, I think. But definitely okay. this year. <laughs> love it, love it, love it. October's not that far. It sounds weird. We're already halfway through June, and it's not yeah. that far from October, which I think is incredible. And I think it's very important, very powerful, as I said, stuff that people can learn from. Uh, obviously, you've gone through a lot of it, obviously, with, with your career and what you've done. And as you said, you, you, you've had, uh, you know, brain injury and you've been able to live with it, through it and, and become more powerful because of it. And I think it's very important for other people to understand. And it's very interesting to me, um, that we don't pay attention to our brain. Like it kind of controls everything. Maybe we should just give it a little more love and attention. I think that could be pretty, uh, pretty helpful. So Christina, this has been absolutely amazing. I always love to ask people where we can find you. I know you got a sweet little QR code, so please put that up on the screen, uh, for a little bit. So anybody that is watching is, is watching the replay. All you have to do is just pop that over. Yep. And, uh, you could just take the QR code. I already tried it. So you just take it, put it right up to the screen and you'll be able to grab all the information. But in case people are just listening to the podcast, Christina, where can yeah. everybody find you on the internet? Well, I actually have a few sites. One is authorchristinasmith.com. And um, one specifically with the concussions uh, is concussionshope.com as well. Uh, you can reach me on social media at Olympian Christina Smith. And uh, I'm also found on Facebook. But to simplify it all, the QR code, uh, which I've shared with you, uh, will bring you to all the different goodies from the the movie. You know, uh, you can look at it's on YouTube and it's called Head Cases. And that uh, is a feature. It's free. And um, also just to give you uh, a little thing that you could punch in would be HTTPS colon slash slash in phone that's i-n-p-h-o-n-e dot c-o slash and then my name christina spelt with a c-h i love it we'll have all the links for everybody that they can go check all that out in the show notes so if you are listening to this i'll have everything there for you but christina this is incredible our good friend tom uh actually just chimed in says grateful you got to tell your story and hopefully we get to tell a little bit more so christina thank you so much i really appreciate you joining me today Thank you so much, Michael. Bye, everybody. Bye.